Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Andrea Oshba is an associate professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa and is a licensed clinical psychologist in the province of Ontario, Canada. She obtained her master's and PhD in clinical psychology from Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University and the Douglas Mental Health University Institute in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. She is director of the Cognition and Anxiety Studies Laboratory and the Sex and Anxiety Research Group. Her research interests as part of the Cognition and Anxiety Studies Laboratory center around understanding the causes and developing treatments for anxiety and fear-related difficulties. She has recently started a program of research to understand the causes and psychological effects of experiencing traumatic and non-traumatic events that transgress one's moral beliefs in military personnel and veterans. Her research in the context of the Sex and Anxiety Research Group centers around the impacts of beliefs around arousal sensations and context on the interpretation of arousal and its impact on sexual interest and functioning. She has received funding for her research broadly, including from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada and the Social Sciences and Humanity Research Council of Canada. Dr. Ashba regularly supervises CBT training and teaches courses on psychopathology and clinical psychology at both the graduate and undergraduate level. She has served on the editorial boards of Psychological Assessment and is currently an associate editor for the journal Behavior Therapy and Experimental Psychiatry and editorial board member for the Behavior Research and Therapy. She is a former president of the Canadian Association for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapies and was seminal in the development of national CBT training guidelines that were released by CACBT in May 2019. All right, Dr. Andrea Ashba, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It's a beautiful day outside. It sure is. I managed to get outside for a little bit at lunchtime, and it was a very, very nice day. It was amazing. Uh, Andrea, it is so great to have you on the podcast today to have a chat around the the central importance of beliefs that clients might hold about emotions. Uh, You know, as a CBT therapist, I think one of the biggest pivots that I've made in my own growth and identity as a therapist is around embracing the central importance of emotions. And what I've observed is that the the beliefs that clients hold around emotions can lead them to resist their internal experience. And this has so many potential downstream implications for being able to cope effectively, be attuned to one's needs, and remain effective in difficult interpersonal situations, things like that. Um, So, you know, Andrew, I'd like to start off by asking you, you what kinds of clinical experiences or observations have led you to become particularly interested in addressing the beliefs or assessing the beliefs that clients hold about their emotions? You know, I've had a couple of recent clinical experiences, especially during the pandemic, where I, you know, I think it's fair to say that we're all experiencing lots of negative emotions, um, where, you know, I've had a, a, a few clients who've really struggled with the idea about being okay with feeling like crap right now, essentially. Um, you know, uh, t- sort of, clients talking about, um, you know, I, I remember there's one, there was one client who was sort of talking about like, uh, you know, I was doing fine before the pandemic. And then all of a sudden I started feeling, you know, I had this very active life and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I'm not doing anything. And I started feeling really bad. And she took this to mean that 
she actually was just using all these other strategies as a distraction coping mechanism and not the idea that, you know, there's a huge loss here. Um, and I, and it kind of made me pause and go, wait a second. Does that really mean that you're flawed in some way or that it's bad because you're feeling bad right now? So those kinds of experiences. There's been also times where, you know, I might have clients and I want to do exposure work with them. Um, and there's lots of avoidance around trying to do exposure and it's not necessarily uh, ambivalence or anything like that. It's fear of emotions. Some clients with, with things like social anxiety who might, um, be afraid of expressing their emotions and, and showing emotions to other people. Um, so these things have sort of cropped up a lot in the clinical work that I've been doing recently. Yeah, I've noticed myself having similar experiences with COVID as well, right, where I'm, I'm having a lot of clients kind of want that tips and tricks conversation, right? Is hey, is there, are there things I can do to sort of feel uh, less anxious or less depressed? And, you know, to some extent, the, the conversation becomes a bit difficult because it's like, hey, maybe perhaps what you're experiencing is a reasonable and expected reaction to what's going on. And struggling against that internal experience might actually be the biggest problem that we have uh, above and beyond just sort of the broader societal context that we're, we're navigating at the moment. And I, and I completely agree about the, the exposure piece where clients can be very sort of intellectually willing and understand what it is that they need to do, but that willingness to experience the internal sensations, um, you know, physical and emotional that come with the exposure can be a real, real rate limiting step in terms of people's uh, ability to engage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Andrea, from your lens as a clinician, you know, what are some of the factors that can shape one's stance towards emotions? I mean, I, I certainly think there's, I mean, there's all kinds of things and, and many of the things that we know that sort of shape people's risk towards developing any type of psychopathology. So, you know, there's certain, certainly I imagine that there may be traits and, and biological predispositions for tolerating these things. I also suspect that there's developmental factors. Um, so, you know, I, I think growing up in a family where you can't talk about your emotions or, you know, that that kind of Protestant ethic kind of piece of, you know, you just have to like grin and bear it kind of attitude. Um, or not having a space or not being told it's okay to talk about your feelings. Um, people who are brought up in emotionally abusive relationships where they're taught it's not safe to talk about their emotions or to show their emotions um, or inconsistent environments where you don't know what to expect. I, I think all those things can play into the beliefs. I, I do suspect there is a little bit of a societal piece, um, you know, that that sort of Facebook phenomena that, you know, everybody puts on their best social face. Um, and so when you're not internally feeling that best social face and you're like you're struggling, I, I think that there's also this sort of implicit idea that, oh, I must be there must be something wrong with me because I'm not thriving right now the way all my Facebook friends are. Um, so I do think that contributes a little bit too. Obviously, there's going to be individual variability, but I mean, would you say it's a fair statement that a lot of people in our society have an expectation of, be, of happiness being almost like the default state 
or that perhaps you're, you're doing something wrong if you've not achieved a consistent state of happiness somehow? I definitely think that there's this sort of societal attitude, especially in North America, that that negative emotions are bad and you need to like do whatever you can to get rid of them. Um, and if you're not doing you're not doing that, you're not succeeding. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I'm going to get the stat wrong, but I'll have it roughly right that I believe Westerners consume like 80% of the pain medication on planet Earth. You know, because we, we, I guess we have a narrative around pain where it's like, no, you, it needs to be gone. There's stuff that you should do about it. And, you know, I'm certainly not, I'm not certainly not promoting anyone suffering needlessly, but it does seem that we seem to have an intolerance of sort of the normal ebbs and flows of life that comprise the human experience. Yeah, I, I think that I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think um, Western medicine has made incredible strides in towards helping people manage pain, um, manage mental health problems and things like that. And I think those are all really great things. But I think alongside a lot of that, I think there's also this message that, you know, our ultimate goal should be get should be to get rid of any bad feelings that we might have. Uh, and I think that that breeds a little bit of a problem as well. Andrea, of course, I will have read your bio prior to the uh, the conversation. And the, the audience will know by now that you're a former president of the Canadian Association for Cognitive and Behavioral Therapy. So I think you're in a great position to speak to this next question. I, I think one of the knocks that CBT maybe gets a little bit unfairly is that it's all about, you know, you know getting rid of bad thoughts, doesn't really deal with emotions so, so much. Uh, can you maybe speak to that and, you know, from a fact versus fiction perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that, you know, uh, having worked with many students, I think that there's sort of somewhere, and I'm not going to point fingers, but somewhere there's this idea of propagating somewhere that CBT is all about skills, that we don't work with emotions. Um you know, and I think I think the idea we don't it's not called emotion cognitive behavior therapy. It's called cognitive behavior therapy. So I think from the get go, I think that our name kind of implies that emotions aren't important. And, you know, I think I think sort of very closely tied to this is 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 maybe just the idea, you know, we teach them we teach people a bunch of skills on you know, how to, um, you know, assertiveness skills, how to ask questions and, and things like that, um, you know, or, you know, we just talk, deal with people's thoughts, but we don't talk about emotions um, and that this is a bit of a Band-Aid uh, solution. But I think that, and I'm sure I'm preaching, preaching to the choir <laughs> right now, but, you know, I think it very much embedded in, in, CBT is is the idea that you know cog cognitions and behaviors are very much tied to our emotions. You know, I, I I spend a lot of time talking about about emotions, right? So you know, you think about the the sort of the triangle that I always present when I talk about uh, anxiety, which is what an area I work at a lot. And you know, you've got 
you know, if you feel if you feel anxious, you might look around in your environment and see that there's a dog. And, you know, that might trigger thoughts about the dangers of dogs and that might prompt you to to run away. Um, you know, um, and that situation starts right there from anxiety. Uh, pan panic disorder is all about physical sensations, which are really emotions um, that people have. Um, so, you know, I think we do talk about emotions on a regular basis, but I think we're, you know, where CBT maybe gets, again, this, this myth that we don't deal with emotions is that you can't really, you can't directly change an emotion, right? So I would challenge and, you know, please send me an email if you're ever able to do this. <laughs> but, you know, if you're feeling sad or you're feeling scared without doing anything, just stop doing that. Stop feeling sad. Stop feeling scared. It doesn't work. And so from a CBT's perspective, we're really working with cognitions and behaviors to adjust the emotions. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of CBT work is is based on evolutionary models about, you know, the purpose of emotions and things like that. So even the psychoeducation that we, we provide, which, you know, it might be arguably like the least it's not not that it's it's incredibly therapeutic, but it's the, probably one of the more didactic pieces that we do do in the context of CBT. I I spend ninety percent of my time doing psychoeducation on the purpose of emotions. Um, so I do think you know we work with emotions all the time. Um, it, it it's just that we work at them through cognitions, behaviors, and and working with people's beliefs. Absolutely. I mean, I think CBT provides an amazing platform for renegotiating our relationship with emotions. And I think a lot of times clients will come in with an expectation that CBT will like get rid of their emotions. And, and I think my very first point is like, no, no, no. It's about renegotiating the relationship with our emotions via the strategies that we're going to impart here. Yes. Yeah, it's absolutely about renegotiating. Um, you know, I think that that's probably one of the first things that I often will do when I'm working with with clients, with clients who have anxiety, with clients who are depressed, or you know, if I'm if I'm working on these beliefs about emotions, I'll start by talking about you know what would happen if you lived in a world if you didn't if you never felt anxious or you never worried about social situations, you know, what would that look like? And and so we really talk about like. No, it's not about trying to get rid of these things. These things are really important and valuable. It's about um, recognizing it as a signal and not necessarily responding to it right at that particular moment, but using it as a signal to say, hey, is there something dangerous out there that I need to re react to? Is this emotion okay? Or can I, you know, should I just sort of continue on with whatever I'm doing? Yeah, absolutely. I was working with a fellow the other day on, uh, he had a really negative appraisal of his anger and, and, you know, it was very unpleasant to experience it and felt really toxic sort of internally. And what we talked about is, Hey, like, what if we put a different meaning on that, that it was an indication that something's come up for you and your environment that you need to be attuned to perhaps a boundary has been violated. And your job is to take that anger and translate it into effective coping, maybe through assertiveness or, you know, some other coping strategy. So it's, it's a vital tool. Like how would you, if we didn't experience physical pain, for instance, we would, you know, we'd bump into things and break our arms and bruise our knees. And we'd have no idea until it was too late that we had caused some real damage. So this, 
this warning system has been around. Like nature's really cheap. It's not going to keep around something that doesn't have value. So, you know, however long, if you look at the lineage of human beings, if we've arrived at this point in time and still have this emotional repertoire with us, it must be of extreme value because otherwise nature would have dispensed of it. That would be my assumption. Uh, you would think, right? Um, you know, and these are really, pain in particular is really an evolutionary old, you know, mammalian brain kind of, or lizard brain kind of piece, right? Like it's, you know, I, I do talk a lot about sort of hot versus cold cognitions or, or emotions, right? And, you know, sort of that direct pathway, that fight or flight response versus, you know, the sort of the long route and that that fight or flight response, for example, will make you want to run away for um, But if you take sort of the long route and you, you and you delay running to look at whether there's really danger out there, um, you can, it can result in a more adaptive response. So, Andrea, just a bit of a kind of a process related question for you you know, in working with the emotions of our clients and helping them to, you know, perceive and experience them and sit with them, that can often bring up difficult stuff for us, right? We, we may have a reaction to their emotions. So in, in leaning into the emotions of your clients, have you found that you've had to check in with yourself around your own comfort with what's coming up or the strength of people's emotions or, or particular kinds of emotions being maybe a little bit activating or, or having to navigate for yourself? Uh, I mean, certainly. I mean, I think when when my my clients are feeling distressed, I mean, it evokes a very strong empathic reaction. As I would teach my clients, it's really sort of thinking about like, what's the function of this emotion? So I'm feeling this. Um, is it most therapeutic in that particular moment for me to to sit with my client to express to them how you know how this emotion is making me feel? Um, sometimes it might be frustration that's, that's provoked, um, as I'm working with a client, like, oh no, here we go. I'm going to talk about this thing again. Um, you know, but then it might be, I use that signal, not as a, you know, a moment to react to that emotion, but maybe as a sign of saying, okay, so the strategy that I've, or the, the, the approach that I've been using to help this client with this is not working. So let's pause and try to figure it out. So I'll often, I'll, you know, my personal reactions, I will often use it that way as sort of a sign on how things are going. Um, but, you know, from a clinical perspective, I'm always thinking, you know, how is this emotion that I'm feeling or the reaction that I'm having, um, how can I use it to serve my client better? Yeah, I love that take on it. And especially what you mentioned about, you know, noticing our reaction and then course correcting maybe on our intervention, right? Like if we're feeling boredom or maybe a little bit listless or frustration, it's like, I, you know, it's a prompt for me to check in with myself. Like, hey, am I asking about the most important thing that we could be talking about right now? Or mm -hmm. have, have I d done a good enough job setting a boundary around a particular thing that I need to or redirecting the client? So yeah, I, I love using our own emotional reaction as a way of course correcting what's going on in the, in the treatment. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose we should be doing it in our lives all the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
I find it's really helpful for like more maybe character logical work as well. If I'm working someone with perhaps, uh, you know, cluster B personality traits or whatnot, I really notice what's going on for me in the room and try and not push it away and find a way of clinically packaging that observation to help them understand my experience of them so they can perhaps, you know, so that they can course correct with maybe the way that they are presenting. Absolutely. Um, You know, I can think of an example where, um, you know, a client who would react particularly strongly um, to kind of many different kinds of interventions in a way that was not necessarily expected. And that kind of prompted me to um, want to walk on eggshells a little bit. And I would notice, uh, you know, being a little bit reluctant to engage in certain activities because of my own discomfort. Um, and so that was a really strong, that's really actually a great example of, of being sort of aware of how your emotions are prompting your reactions to the clients. Um, and then you can sort of use that um, to course correct, as you said, right? To think about like it is avoiding doing this activity, is it in the interest of the client or am I avoiding it because of my own discomforts? Yeah, and I think that's so important, uh, especially if one's involved in trauma work per se, right? You're talking about, yes. I, be- I believe you have a lot of experience in this, like moral injury or, or hearing about very, very difficult things where there's moral jeopardy involved or really no good outcome was possible or a terrible outcome. Uh, it can bring up all kinds of things that you have to have the capacity to be able to con- contain and hold in that moment to be dealt with later, perhaps as part of self-care or, you know, your own therapy. But um, it, it's, you, you can't pretend that that's not going to come up for you. Yeah, you can't pretend and then nor should nor should you pretend. Um, you know, I, I you know, I think a piece of that trauma work is connecting with the clients in their experience. And so if you don't allow yourself to. Uh, experience um, feelings of like horror, disgust at what happened to the client, or or share in that sadness with the client. I, I don't know, like if I, I don't know about you, but I can only imagine like sharing this horrible, horrible thing that happened to me, and then having a you know a sort of a blank slate respond response. Like it's incredibly invalidating. A key to a lot of the work that we do, um, especially when we're talking about trauma and and anxiety disorders, is asking our clients to do really uncomfortable things um, that provoke horrible reactions, really negative reactions, things that we wouldn't necessarily want to do ourselves um, in the service of, of helping them with their problems. And so I think that building that sort of strong therapeutic relationship, making sure that they understand what they, what the goals of the activity are, uh, applying recognition about how difficult these things are for the client and showing some sensitivity to their experiences gives, helps us a long way towards achieving success with our clients. You know, Andrea, I just wanted to explore some of the more maybe process-related issues around emotions. Cause again, thinking about my own journey as a therapist, I think it was my own discomfort with emotions that made me kind of veer away from it and do more of, you know, the cognitive and the, and the behavioral work. But as I've grown as a clinician and hopefully as a human, I've really learned to lean into the emotions and I found a lot of value there. So I just wanted to flesh out that, that piece a little bit, but maybe now we can transition to like the delivery of a therapy piece. So Andrew, when do you typically know that it's time to start working on beliefs about emotions? What's coming up in the process for you that you're noticing? 
Well, I, I suppose it, it, I mean, it depends a little bit on the context. So, so people might come in to therapy sort of describing experiences that, that look an awful lot like avoidance of emotions. So it might be um, describing, like, I really can't share any of my experiences with my friends and families because I don't want to offend them. Um, it could be, um, you know, extreme avoidance. So it could be sort of in the context of something like social anxiety disorder and stuff like that. Um Oftentimes, if therapy is also often started, it might be noticing that I'm not making the kind of progress that I want in therapy um, with a client for whatever reason, or I start to hear these beliefs come up, or the client's often in, in crisis. So, you know, are contacting me in between sessions to sort of say, you know, I've really struggled with our last session, um, you know, and even if you have checked in with that client, um, you know, when, when they when they don't feel that safe spot to to be able to talk about what's going on, despite having a good therapeutic relationship, right? So I think that that's you know if you're struggling with your client, I and mean, then that's an important piece to check in. But if that's if that's strong and that's there, but they're not feeling safe about sharing their experience, that that could be another sort of sign. I think one thing I've struggled with is clients that kind of hide in plain sight and they're they're often the really intellectually gifted high functioning clients where we can have these really great conversations and we can kind of you know conceptualize things and and work with it at that particular plane but the therapy is not really going anywhere in a sense because they're not experiencing perhaps what they need to experience it's all being intellectualized yeah uh, yeah what do you think about that idea of like sort of people again like kind of hiding in plain sight um through that you know, intellectualization of the process. Absolutely. You know, clients who, you know, those, those clients, where you don't see them express a lot of emotion when they're talking about things that are particularly difficult um, or don't experience fluctuations in, the, in anxiety during exposure exercise. Those could all be signs um, that they're having trouble grappling with the idea of being comfortable experiencing negative emotions. Yeah, for sure. I'm just, this conversation is making me reflect on other things I've seen too, or that I think another pattern is clients, they'll describe a lot of distress or dysphoria sort of outside session, but then when they're in there with you, they're like, oh, well, everything's okay now, or it's, well, it's not that, it's not that bad sort of a minimization of, yeah. uh, of, of that. Like you never get to see sort of it in a live fire exercise. That's why I'm such a big fan of doing exposures with clients right up front. It's like, I want to see what comes up for you when you're confronted yeah. with, with this. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it gets me thinking about one client who, uh, you know, this was a client who had really strong beliefs that, you know, I'm not supposed to feel negative emotions. And no matter what would be going on, you know, if somebody asks, how are you doing? Her response would always be, I'm living the dream. Um, <laughs> you know? um, so we actually use that quite a bit in our, in our work together um, to talk, talk about that as, as sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, the avoidance piece. So bringing in that humor a little bit into session. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost even a cue that there's, everything's not okay. Right. It's almost like over, it's like, uh, well, in, in schema parlance, it's like overcompensation, right? You do the opposite yeah. of, you know, what actually is coming up. I think in my, one of my daughters, we, you know, I say, Hey, how's school going? Good. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's like, that tells me it's going far from good and I need to, you know, check in yeah. on what's actually going on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Speaking of beliefs, Andrew, what are some of the common types of beliefs about emotion that might cause problems? You know, what, what are sort of the appraisals of emotions that tend to get people sort of stuck uh, in themselves? So I've, I've, I've sort of identified two sort of broad categories. So I think one is sort of beliefs about the validity of having negative emotions. So these are, these are sort of beliefs like, you know, if I, if I'm, you know, I can't experience negative emotions, you're not supposed to feel negative emotions. Um, If I feel a negative emotion, it means I'm vulnerable. Um, So these sort of beliefs about the self and the purpose of negative emotions um, and, and I mean, these beliefs overlap, but I think the other one is sort of expressing negative emotions. So those ones are beliefs about feeling things. The other one might be expressing negative emotions, like other people don't want to see or don't want to hear about my negative emotions or the bad things that are going on in my life. I'm going to burden other people with their, with these experiences. Um, you know, um, I'm not worthy of being able to share these emotions with other people. Um, so maybe bringing up feelings of shame on top of that. Um, but th- those are sort of the two broad categories that I've sort of encountered that can be problematic and difficult. Absolutely. So again, just to summarize, one would be that the experience of those negative emotions is sort of out of bounds. It's like, well, we can't have this. This is not good. This is harmful or shameful. I'm a bad person for feeling feeling this. And the other is, hey, I have this emotion, but you know, if I put it out there, if I if I am assertive or or you know, I guess if I am assertive, then I'm going to be judged negatively. People are going to think that I'm selfish or I'm narcissistic or you know, being you know overly needy or you know whatever it happens to be. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sort of those two broad categories are the ones that I've really identified. So sometimes it might be like, oh, I'm going to be narcissistic or, you know, I'm just not worthy of sharing those those, those emotions. Um, interestingly, I haven't come up, come encountered too much with, with sort of distrust about sharing emotions with others that I can't trust other people with my emotions. I haven't come across that one too much, but I could imagine that there may be some people who also feel that way, that I can't trust people are going to care about my emotions or that they're going to, to help me. Oh, for sure. I think, I think definitely clients who have had certain, you know, varieties of developmental experiences will have had the experience that, they say, you know, say something in confidence to one parent and then they maybe get, you know, maybe there's some splitting going on and it's used against them in some way or who knows, right? Yeah. Their, their, yeah. Vul- their vulnerability has not been rewarded with altruism or, or love. It's been rewarded with uh, betrayal or I guess even worse malevolence. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Andrea, are there any kind of presentations from a clinical perspective that you've noticed tend to sort of map onto these beliefs? Or do you feel like it's just across that it could kind of go with anything ultimately? That's a very good question. Um, you know, I can only speak sort of anecdotally about these sorts of things. Um, I do think that the beliefs about not being able to 
share one's emotions. I think that that may go along a little bit with, with people with social anxiety. I'm going to be embarrassed, humiliated if I share these emotions. I think it's also another one that goes along with people who've experienced a lot of um, uh, emotional or traumatic uh, like abuse as, as children, where they might have gone on to develop complex PTSD or something like that, where there there is this like, you know, I don't know how if how what's going to happen if I share my emotions, and I've really taught that I, you know, it's dangerous to do so. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, people, I think people who sort of have that anxiety spectrum, that idea of anxiety sensitivity, this sort of belief or intolerance of physical sensations and and things like that, uh, pain, um, those might be. The kinds of people that you could you could uh, expect to see um, having these beliefs that negative sensations or negative emotions are bad. No, for sure. I mean, I think I think what I've seen is just to build on what you're saying just a little bit. Oftentimes, people who are uncomfortable expressing emotions or can. Uh, yeah, expressing emotions, especially the unpleasant ones like anger, tend to be hampered a lot by physiological uh, symptoms. So they may not ex- get to experience it quite as cognitively. It's kind of, it's almost like it's more somatic, you know, the upset yeah. stomach, migraines, muscle tension, uh, th- things like that. I think depression really goes with 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 that subjugation of of anger as well, right? When people are forced into these submissive relationships, or, or dynamics over and over again with people where they can't get angry at their boss or they can't be angry with their partner. It just, you know, it seems to really drive depression uh, in particular for, yeah. I think for, for evolutionary reasons, right? Because you probably maybe for good reasons, if they are assertive or they do get angry, they're going to get attacked, right? So it yeah. just, they, it's like a lock and key. They fit together in that dynamic in a submissive dominant kind of uh, dance. Well, I mean, if you think of sort of these, you know, like the learned helplessness models of depression, right? The first, you know, or like abandonment, I think it was the dogs and they would call, they'd start with calling out and crying out and, and things like that, right? And you can almost think that as, as sort of expressing anger or expressing that need. But then once you realize that that need's no longer met, then it's, it's, it's sort of shutting down and, and pooling your resources and keeping yourself safe and quiet. Um, so it, it, it does really fit in with that model of depression. Yeah, that's very well said. Like, I think the only thing worse than being in an uncontrollable situation is trying to have control when you, when you don't have control. Yes, exactly. Right? I mean, yeah. I think this is this is a big part of psychoeducation about depression in particular, right? Is that no matter how unpleasant the depression is, on some level, it's your body's, you know, attempt to regulate your homeostasis relative to the conditions in your environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but of course, it's complicated because it, some of it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, depend, like we we know how we see the world is going to influence, you know, what we experience. So it's it's not always black and white necessarily, right? So someone with depression may perceive not having any control when in fact they may have a ton of control that they're leaving off the table. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it is certainly in the eye beholder and you do. And I, I think that I spend a lot of work helping clients to recognize that how, just how subjective our experiences are. Uh, and I find that goes a way, long way towards building that sort of flexibility that I think is so valuable um, in, in a lot of different contexts when we're talking about mental health problems. 
Absolutely. Andrea, would you, you know, just as a flyer here, would you consider uncertainty to be an emotion or to be a concept or some, some blend of the two? Because that, that seems to also be a very challenging experience for people with respect to sitting with emotions is uncertainty tends to make people very uneasy. I think it's sort of a state. And, you know, I think we have, I think there's lots of evidence now to suggest that uncertainty is sort of this trans diagnostic factor that touches on a different, on a variety of different problems and that it might be uncertainty in one specific domain or another that, that determines sort of the flavor, right? Uh, but I, I, I think it's, I think uncertainty itself is a state. So being, un, you know, a situation can be uncertain. Um, I think we have beliefs about uncertainty and the degree to which, you know, you might be able to tolerate uncertainty or the degree to which uncertainty should exist in the world and things like that. And I think it's those beliefs that provoke anxiety or depression and things like that. So I think the emotion is what the emotion is. It's the beliefs that surround uncertainty um, that are tied to those um, emotions. No, great point. And I think it's worth mentioning that uncertainty, excuse me, certainty is a sensation, let's say that our body curates. It's not like we're tapping into an objective reality, right? Like it's not like we're detecting gravity or something, right? Because how many times have we perceived ourselves to be certain about something and then been wrong, right? So absolutely. I mean, you know, I, it, it certainly is a, per, it's a perception. And I suppose, it, and maybe that's a good way to describe it. And as a perception, as opposed to an emotion per se, right? So we can, we can perceive uncertainty in all our different areas of life and we can perceive un, uncertainty in the same context. So, you know, I can walk down the streets and feel certain or perceive uncertainty um, and therefore not experience anxiety. Um, if I perceive that the likelihood of being hit by a car is unlikely, right? But if I've experienced a car accident and you know I have PTSD as a result and I perceive that there's, there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not a car is gonna come barreling down the street and hit me, right? I'm going to experience a lot of anxiety, but the actual situation and the actual um, degree of certainty or uncertainty could be identical in the same situation. It's the perception of the individual about that uncertainty. Absolutely. And just to give another example of the constructed nature of certainty, I remember chatting with Christine Purden on the uh, podcast about OCD, and she was talking about some of the neurobiological models. And the idea is that imagine you have a rabbit on the edge of a carrot patch, and it's surveying the sky for a hawk or the, you know, the field for a coyote. And at some point, it will make its brain will make some sort of arbitrary determination that like, okay, it's safe enough to go out and get a carrot. And what happens in OCD is that that construction of certainty just is never completed, right? So, mm -hmm. so you know, for our clients with OCD, they have to act in the face of uncertainty that may mean never be resolved because their brain in that moment may lack the ability to construct that sensation or that perception, I should say, of certainty. Yeah. So I think through both examples, like I love the one that you just gave, and I, and I think through this OCD example, it's, re again, really worth underscoring that certainty is a perception, 
that we that yes. our brain that our brain constructs that's influenced about our past experiences. It's making a prediction about the future. It's not an objective reality that we are sort of you know assessing like gravity or photons or or something like that. No, I mean, you know, I think it's one of these heuristics that we, we're using to to bumble through the world as best as we can. But a lot, a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these sort of decision making, um, uh, you know, uh, tricks that we use. Um, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not so helpful for us. Yeah. It's almost like they're just like good enough. It's not like they, they don't, they just have to be good enough for us to reproduce. They don't have to be good enough to reveal the ultimate truth about the universe. If I can say it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Oftentimes, you know, I think our our brain tricks us into thinking that this is the ultimate truth. Um, but there's no reason to think, and now we're getting really, really philosophical, but there's no reason to actually think that this is, you know, that our perception is reality. As both clinicians and humans, we can understand how hard it is to move past emotional reasoning, right? You feel something, it becomes sort of synonymous with what's actually going on. This has happened to me a couple of times on the podcast where I've done them maybe, you know, at the end of the day on a Monday and I've been tired and feeling a little bit washed out, I'll be like, oh man, that didn't go so well. And then it's, you know, I listen to it later on when my emotional state has changed. I'm like, hey, that was actually, that was, you know, a really fun conversation. Thought it flowed, went well. So I've just been struck by how influenced our perceptions can be by the emotional state that we're in. I mean, obviously we see this in it with, that's the crux of our work with clients, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, but I think it's, it's a human experience. I mean, you know, you can apply the experience that you just described to any number of things. So absolutely playing music, teaching, you know, there, I can't tell you how many times that I've, I've gone on a lecture going, man, I really like, I totally confused them there. I made absolutely no (laughs) sense. Um, And yet somehow they seem to understand what I was trying to describe. Um, or, or even in our work with clients, right? You can, off, you know, I think there, there's the perception of two people there, right? Uh, there's the perception of the progress that uh, I think my client's making. There's, there's a perception of the progress that the client thinks that they are making, you know. And there's lots of research to suggest that those don't necessarily uh, correlate super strongly with each other. And I guess the big question is which one. Is, is one more real than the other? Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, do, do you, in therapy, do we have agreed upon social realism? You know, it's, it's like what actually is going on in there. Anyway, we're, wow, we're, we're psychology. Getting... We don't have agreed upon realism of what's happening with <laughs> mental health problems, let alone where they can do a whole other podcast about that one day. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I'm also, you know, I, 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 I seem to find an excuse to bring her up once a podcast, but, but uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's model of emotions really talks about sort of the interoceptive sensations as being the seat of where affect is generated. And then subsequently, you know, we use our emotions to basically predict uh, or make predictions about what our affective state is telling us. Right. So even just, you know, she makes the point that, yeah, you might feel like you're in a bad mood because something's going on around you, but it could be that your, you know, your digestion's off and there's a little bit of extra inflammation in your body, which is setting up, you know, a cascade of events that leads to the accumulation of like, I feel bad, but it's, it's because there's something going on inside of you, not necessarily around you. 
I'm just in the process of actually analyzing some data. So it's it's slightly an unrelated topic, but one of my um, sort of sub areas of research interest is on the interplay between sex and anxiety. And um, so I just did this, this, you know, if you think about the sensations that we think about with anxiety, right? Pounding hearts, sweating, and things like that. These are all sensations that you might encounter in a sexual context. So we did this really lovely vignette study where we had uh, vignettes where the situation was either clearly erotic, it was neutral, like I'm washing the dishes, or it was it was threatening, like I'm you know reading a book and all of a sudden I hear a crash in the other room. Um, and we paired those with either um, what we called automatic autonomic arousal sensations. So these would be like, you know, your heart is pounding and you're sweating. Um, uh, sexual arousal sensations that were male or female specific. Uh, and then our control was was sadness only because we could we could think of we that was the one emotion that we could think of how to describe without using the emotion words, which is surprisingly really difficult to do. Yeah. Um, you know, so you're, you know, your, your, your eyes well up and you you know, you, you start to have tears on your cheek or something like that. Um, and, you know, we kind of mashed these all together and we were, we did an undergraduate student sample where we just asked them, you know, like what emotion, what's the most likely emotion that you're feeling and what's, um, you know, how likely are you to want to stay or go in the situation? And I think perhaps, you know, when they're, when the sensations were were sexual arousal, there wasn't a lot of variation, right? Um, but really, uh, what was fascinating is that in the sexually arousing sensation uh, or the, the the erotic sense, the erotic context, um, those autonomic sensations were almost as often interpreted as sexual arousal as these overt sexually arousing sensations. But the moment that you switch that context to threatening um, those, you know, it was, it was the context that drove people's actions. So it didn't matter what sensation you were feeling, people labeled themselves as feeling uncomfortable. Um, so it was a really, it's a really interesting study and I'm, I'm enjoying their complicated analysis for such a simple study. But um, I think that it really drives home the importance of just that link between context and how you interpret those sensations. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think almost every psychologist arrives at some conversation where they compare the physiolo physiological changes that happen in exercise with a panic attack. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can say in many instances that what goes on during exercise is far more kind of, you know, violent physically than what would go on in a panic attack. Uh, but yet context is everything, right? And yeah. or c controllability is everything. And it, just that little shift in context makes that same heart rate going up mean something very different. Yeah, it's it, it it shifts completely how you're what you're attributing those sensations to. Absolutely. Okay, Andrea. So for clients who have beliefs about the apparent danger of expressing negative emotions to others, what types of cognitive strategies can can be helpful? So I think you know I think a lot of the cognitive strategies, a lot of it starts at least for me in providing some psychoeducation. So I would I would sort of. Um, talk to clients about the purposes of 
of expressing emotions. And so I might have these conversations about when it might be useful to share emotions and when it might not be useful to share emotions. And, you know, like, how do you infer that there's something wrong with your partner? Um, you know, and, and, and sort of explore things that way. Um, so those are the kind, like for that one, that those are really the kinds of cognitive strategies that I will use sort of psychoeducation about the purpose of emotions. I always start with that. Why do we feel these things? Um, and talk about, you know, the purposes. Um, I might explore with them some of those beliefs. So, you know, if you were to express, you know, if you were to show your anger, what would that mean, you know, and, and to really do a lot of Socratic questioning to try to understand from the client's perspective about what, what's happening there. Um, with those, then I'll often go on and do a lot of behavioral strategies after the fact with those two. I mean, those can be quite fun. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Andrew, do you ever explore maybe the other, maybe it's just the other side of the coin, but the cost of inaction. So clients hold negative beliefs about the potential for, hey, if I'm assertive or, you know, I'm going to get aggressive, I'll be perceived negatively, but they may underplay the, the cost of not doing anything. Do you help them to connect with that piece? Absolutely. Right. The costs of not sharing. So it, there may be sort of, I guess, this uh, almost like a mo uh, motivational interview. Like, what are the what are the pros and cons of of sharing your emotions versus not sharing your emotions? You know, how open are there? You know, I, we might also talk about, um, you know, what's it like when other people share emotions with you? Um, so, you know, uh, particularly like with clients who, who have these beliefs about, um, you know, I'm going to be a burden to my friends if I share my emotions. Um, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time talking with them about like, well, can you think about a time when a friend shared shared something that was difficult with you? Um, you know, how did you feel? You know, well, they, they may say something. Well, you know, it was really hard to hear. But actually, you know, I, I felt pretty good that I knew that I was helping my friend out. Uh, and then I'll often flip it around and say, well, you know. So what makes you think that your, your friends, you know, or the people that are close to you um, won't feel the same way? Um, so I'll, I'll do a lot of work with that. Now, the one thing that I will add, though, is that I do spend some time talking about um, appropriate and inappropriate disclosure of emotions. So we sort of use this. I don't know if you've ever used in, in some of the social anxiety work, this idea that you've got sort of these social bubbles. Um, and that some social bubbles are more appropriate to share certain intimate things than others. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, for example, in the context of uh, the pandemic, right? Um, you know, when somebody, you know, when a colleague comes up and says, you know, how are you doing? You know, if you respond saying, oh, I'm doing fantastic, it can come off as a little bit false, right? Like, so I, you know, I, th I think in this particular climate that we're living in, sort of sharing, yeah, it's pretty crappy, or, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting through it. I, I think that that's, you know, that may be appropriate level of disclosure, sort of to those outer fringe people. And then as you move in, you might talk about more and more personal details, right? So you might share that negative space with somebody very far out, but you probably wouldn't, you know, um, cry in front of those, those individuals. So I would talk a lot about sort of um, 
those kinds of, you, you know, I, I suppose it's um, wise expression of emotions. Yeah, I like that. You know, the, the, the right dose of vulnerability, I think, can go a long way to making an interaction feel just a little bit more meaningful or uh, for both parties and, and more comfortable. Like no one wants to be around someone who never experiences anything. On the other hand, it can be uncomfortable and not sustainable to be around someone who's chronically sort of in in a heightened level of distress. So there's there's some middle ground there that's got to be sort of, uh, you know, in, in that interpersonal effective sweet spot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and so I do spend quite a bit of time sort of talking with my clients about, you know, who in their lives do they think they they would feel safe or comfortable sharing these emotions with and and do they and and what kinds of things do they feel they can they can share um and you know for some clients it might just you, you know they they may feel comfortable sharing you know with with one or two very close people and that's perfectly normative um you know but there may be there are some people who won't share anything with anybody um you know and those are particularly the the clients where um assertiveness might be an issue or they've they've experienced these emotional uh abusive relationships in the past where they just don't feel safe doing it um you know, and then, it, you know, I think for other people, it's it's more sort of, a, you know, they may be quite high functioning um, and just very avoidant of feeling emotions and, and expressing emotions in general. I would like to ask you a question about maybe, again, those clients that might be able to kind of hide in plain sight where, like, I'm thinking of the pleaser kind of clients, right, where... Uh, they've they've leveraged a, a paradigm of being liked over perhaps being respected. And I think with these clients, I try to kind of feather in the idea that, hey, like, you know, being liked is great, but you also want to be res- respected. And being respected often means saying no. Yeah. Uh, and being liked involves saying yes. So you have to have an appropriate blend of saying yes and no in life. Otherwise, you know, you can't you can't be saying no all the time either, right? There's some balance between the, the, the two. What do, what do you think about that idea? I, I mean, I think it's apps. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, as, as we're talking, I'm thinking this overlaps some of this stuff, especially about expressing emotion to others overlaps with a lot of the things about like assertiveness training and, and talking about like how to say no to people. Um, but oftentimes it's not just even about saying no or disagreeing with somebody. Sometimes it's even a step further in terms of like, I'm not going to share with you how sad I'm feeling right now um, or, you know, that, you know, that I had this argument because I don't want to burden with you with, you know, talking about all my problems because you're just not going to like me if all I talk about are all my problems. So I'll, I'll, I'll sort of challenge beliefs like that, that sort of all or nothing thinking when it comes, you know, is it true that all you're going to talk about is your negative emotions, you know? conversations as we've seen right now have drift back and forth from talking about one problem to going off and meandering to something else and then coming back. And um, so uh, I'll challenge some of those beliefs and things like that too. What about strategies for uh, those clients who harbor uh, negative beliefs about experiencing internally their unpleasant emotions? So they're, they're sort of resisting their, their own internal experience. Yeah. So again, it all starts with a lot of psychoeducation about the purpose of emotions and why these are adaptive um, and, and, you know, really helping them to think about like, are there times, you know, I'll have them think about it, situations or experiences where, where 
having those negative emotions or even any emotions um, might be helpful for them. Um, you know, so can you think of a time where, um, you know, you felt anxious or scared or really uncomfortable and it was helpful for you to feel that way? And so they might think about, you know, I was really anxious about um, preparing for this job interview. And so I, you know, spent time preparing and I got the job. Um, or, you know, I was feeling really uncomfortable about this, you know, about this relationship. So I chose to end it. And that ended up being a really positive thing for me. So I, I talk a lot about those sorts of things. I also often use, will use sort of analogies too. Um, so, uh, you know, um, the sports analogies, I use, I use sports analogies, even though I don't play sports myself, myself, but I'll use sports analogies a lot, strangely enough, um, but sort of talking about the purpose of like exercise and, you know, like if you, you know, if you really are training hard to, to, to do something, is it all pleasant? And why is it that you might tolerate some of that discomfort when you're, you know, you're, you're working to be able to achieve this sport goal? Um, and, you know, can you apply that to, to feeling emotions and, you know, what might be the benefits of doing each of those things? So I'll, I'll use those kinds of um, examples as well. Andrea, is the acceptance and commitment model a way of thinking through this that resonates with you that, or that you leverage sort of that idea of values-driven living? You commit to living out your values and you accept the experience of whatever kind of emotional experience might be the price of admission to get from a to B, I heard a lot of that in your sports metaphor. Is, is that sort of aligned with your thinking? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I certainly, not always with these clients, but I, I will, I often do a lot of values-based work. Um, but certainly, like, even if I'm not focusing on living about sort of values, certainly sort of those, that acceptance, um, you know, of experiencing these emotions or, or accepting the presence of those emotions to achieve, you know, a goal, I guess, you know, I guess that goal idea is values-based. When I think about values-based, I'm thinking sort of a bit more broader, but, um, but yeah, I, I do use sort of acceptance of these negative emotions as, as being an important piece. Clients often ask us about medication, right? And especially when they first come in, they're experiencing a lot of distress. They might be fresh off of a psychosocial stressor of some kind. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, I'm always trying to think through, okay, what, What's reasonable for this person to experience in order to connect with the gravity of what's going on and to maybe, you know, uh, allow the kind of maybe motivation for change that might be necessary versus what's just suffering. And, you know, that's unnecessary and the person could benefit from an antidepressant of some kind or some sort, you know, whatever the appropriate strategy would be. Uh, Andrea, as a clinician, how do you think through that conundrum when you, you see someone in front of you who's clearly experiencing a lot of psychological pain? How do you kind of think through the difference between, okay, what's reasonable and expectable and actually might be, you know, an ally in the process versus what's just suffering and we need to perhaps do something about it? It's a really, really good question. I, I'm, I'm thinking through this as, as we speak. Um, you know, I think that I, I think my first response is that I wouldn't necessarily take sort of momentary distress as a sign that something right. happened. So I think that it would be something that I would choose to monitor initially across sessions, um, you know, and I probably would choose up to use um, 
I, I probably have to use sort of a lot of behavioral strategies or just my, the work that I'm doing with my client first before I would say, hey, I think you need medication. So, you know, if a client comes to me and they couldn't do an exercise, I might make, I might draw the conclusion that maybe we, we shot too high for, for that exercise and, and sort of pull things back, or we might do it in session. Um, I think if a client was not making a lot of progress over an extended period of time, that it was significantly interfering with their ability to work or their ability to function on the day-to-day life, um, then I might, but it would be a very rare instance where I would say that you you might want to consider talking with your doctor. Um, You know, I, I, I think I often will use this analogy of sort of the double-headed arrow um, where, you know, you might feel anxious right now, but then if you start feeling anxious about your anxiety or you're starting to judge your anxiety, that's going to make that experience a whole lot worse. Um, And that might be what's making this particular moment of, uh, you know, suffer, start that again, that might be what's making that particular moment so difficult for you. Um, You know, so let's work on on trying to reduce that, that, that double whammy uh, first and see what happens. Oh, for sure. Uh, There's two hidden curves that I've learned exist from my work with tinnitus uh, with clients. Tinnitus is a ringing in the ears that, you know, clients can't directly uh, control, of course, and it can cause a lot of significant distress. And the way out of tinnitus is to first achieve habituation of reaction, right? So the tinnitus is there, but you just basically have a neutral reaction to it. And then, then once you've achieved habituation of reaction, then you get habituation of perception where you no longer hear the signal. Like your brain basically just edits it out of your conscious experience. And the same is true of anxiety, right? You have to have a habituation of your reaction to the anxiety. And then you, as a nice side effect, it will go down, but everybody wants the opposite people there. You know, if it's easy to feel good about the panic attacks, you're not having, so everybody wants the curves reversed, right? Where they're like, well, I don't, if I don't feel my anxiety anymore, then I'll feel great about it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's, and again, it's that's where that doesn't work that way. No. And that's where that renegotiation comes in, right? Where it's not about making it go, go away. It's about renegotiating. And then as a nice side effect, it will actually kind of move along naturalistically. Yeah. And I think a really nice way of sort of helping clients on their way towards that is to, you know, just like uncertainty, right? Our tolerance of uncomfortable emotions can be quite contextual. So, you know, we might tolerate some types of uncomfortable sensations and not others. Uh, So, you know, that's where things like those sports analogies and and things like that come in, right? Um, Or frustration tolerance, like, you know, uh, I play music. And so, you know, if I want to achieve that goal of getting to that you know, being able to play that riff, I have to tolerate the frustration of playing it really, really badly first to get to that goal, right? And so I tolerate that frustration. But if you ask me to tolerate the frustration of trying to remember to water plants every day, that is not a goal I'm going to achieve because I just don't <laughs> have a green thumb in me, right? So um, I, I will use lots of analogies and, and I really try to draw upon the client's experiences. So, you know, what are the things that are important to the client and, and help have them think about like, what are the things that you tolerate to, to enjoy this thing? 
Um, and, you know, can we apply? So you can tolerate those discomfort sensations here. What if we tried it in this context too, um, to, to help? And I think that and a really important part in all of that is really helping the client to understand why, why one should tolerate these sensations. What's the purpose of that? Exactly. What's like the business case for, you know, experiencing this? Andrea, you've alluded to uh, employing behavioral strategies quite a bit. Um, you know, for either those clients who worry about expressing their emotions or who worry about, you know, experiencing these emotions internally, you know, even if it's just their own private experience, what are the kind of behavioral strategies that you use in order to move them closer to being able to uh, or have that bigger window of tolerance around those experiences? Believe it or not, I use exposure a lot with clients. Um, and so just like uh, somebody who's afraid of dogs, I'll, we'll create an exposure hierarchy um, to experiencing different emotions. So I'll have clients do all kinds. So in terms of feeling emotions, uh, YouTube has all kinds of great, really sad. One of my clients did not like feeling sad and did not like vulnerable, feeling vulnerable. So we we like Googled sad movies. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, the 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 ultimate goal for the client was to watch an animal movie from start to finish. Um, you know, so we would start sort of things short um, and, and move them on longer. And so it was start to finish without fidgeting or without like getting up to go to the bathroom during the sad moments and, and all those sorts of things. Um, for feeling emotions, I might encourage clients to do a little bit of journaling um, or, you know, it, it might also be habituation to just like what we use with interoceptive exposure. I sometimes might even use sort of interoceptive exposure to sad feelings. So I'll have them watch, you know, uh, bits of a sad movie. Animal movies seem to do work really, really well with people, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know what it means about us humans, but animals always get to us, um, you know, and then just sort of sit and focus. And instead of trying to get away from the emotions, sit and focus on the emotions. So what does it feel like that you're, you know, that your eyes are welling up? What does it feel like in your nose and your chest and, and all those sorts of things and just getting them to sit with it. I suppose in the spring you, pollen season, you can get them to sit <laughs> I don't know. Um, but those are, those are sort of the, some of the strategies. And then in terms of expressing emotions, um, we've, I've done things like uh, we would sit in session and uh, take turns expressing emotions or making facial expressions of, you know, anger or, you know, yelling at each other. <laughs> And, and things like that. Um, it might be, you know, changing the dialogue. So, you know, next time somebody says, how are you doing? You can, you know, instead of saying, you know, hunky dory saying, you know, actually I've had a pretty crappy day um, and observing people's responses all the way up to sort of choosing to share um, personal experiences with very close friends. Um, so we might do lots of that work in session and then we'll, we'll sort of extend it out, out um, and track, track beliefs and expectations um, and, and track the outcome. For a clinician who's listening, who's thinking to themselves, hey, you know, maybe I should be, you know, leveraging, you know, this kind of stuff a little bit more. Are there resources or, or is, there, is there a place that you would direct them to? Uh, you know, maybe acquire some of these techniques or learn a little bit more about them? 
I, I don't have specific resources. Um, and in fact, I've been sort of debating about putting together some workshops on these kinds of things. I, I you know, um, I suppose the resource that would come to mind for me that would be the closest is, is some of Barlow's transdiagnostic um, models, right? So his, his I, I work quite regularly from his book because um, I, I think it, it applies quite broadly to a lot of different types of problems. And I think it also applies very well to clients who come in who might not meet diagnostic criteria for a specific problem, but have, you know, like inklings of all kinds of different things, um, you know, but are maybe quite high functioning. And, and, you know, in his book, he spends quite a bit of time talking about what the function of emotions are from a trans diagnostic perspective. He builds in the exposure. And I think that there's an encouragement in those models to, to sort of think broadly about exposure and broadly about things. It's not like, exposure to this one thing it's 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 identifying what's the piece that's difficult for the client um and how do you do build an exposure hierarchy um that touches on the client's experiences i love that protocol and to me you know if you can bring in the values or the the act kind of angle it's such a nice one-two punch it's I think good therapy is very much like, you know, um, like a diet. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. So when you can get people sort of in the, in that kind of lifestyle, uh, as opposed to uh, implementing a series of strategies, although that's actually how it's actioned. Uh, I find that can be really effective. Absolutely. I mean, it is strategies, but I think, you know, the strategies serve the goal about shifting people's acceptance, you know, I, I, I do think that a lot of this comes down to acceptance, right? Um, and shifting, shifting people's acceptance of, of these experiences by accumulating evidence that, you know, maybe that belief that one recognizing that beliefs are changeable and shiftable and, and um, perceptions, as we've talked about, but also, you know, allowing one's, uh, allowing that cognitive flexibility to change those. Um, so, you, you know, and, you know, while there, there's strategies that we're showing them how to choose those, I think once those shifts do happen, while people may be still vulnerable for those, I think that they've learned these experiences. So oftentimes when clients come back with stuff, it may be just, you know, I just need to like, regroup and think about like, how do I do this in this particular context? No, for sure. I mean, I, f I feel like the clients that do the very best are those that end up taking, taking it on as almost like a scientific endeavor, right? Like, yeah. I, I wonder what will happen if I do this. I wonder what happens if I do that. And they start to, like, it's curiosity that's driving them as uh, yeah. as opposed to, as opposed to um, a fear is like, they, like they're playing to win as opposed to, you know, playing not to lose, I guess, if that makes sense to build into sports analogy, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think that that's so, so important. And I think that that's where that values-based stuff fits in. Um, you know, I don't think that we as a society very often will stop and think what are the things that are really important to us? 
you know, I think as a society, we're told the things that are supposed to be important to us sometimes. Um, and so I think when, when clients are better able to articulate what are the things that are important, what do I want to make out of my life? And I do think that that comes a little bit with maturity and experiences and things like that. But I think if, if they have a better crystallized view of what those things are, um, they're in a position to better make informed choices about things that um, they don't want to experience and the things that they do. So there may be, you know, you know, I don't like spiders particularly, but um, I don't feel a particular um, need to, to get over that fear um, because it's not one that's, that's um, consistent with my values. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh I guess, you know, there's, there's one last thought I'd like to leave the audience with around vulnerability. I think vulnerability and acceptance are so important because if you can be vulnerable, then you can allow yourself to experience what's going on for you. And if you can experience what's going on for you, then you have a reasonable chance of being able to take care of yourself. And, and I think so often when clients aren't able to cope adequately is because they're resisting what's going on for them and misaligning their coping with what's actually going on. You know, they might be serving the needs of anger when really they need to serve the needs of sadness or something, something like that. So I've, I really appreciated from that angle, all the things that you've had to say, Andrea, today about uh, helping clients to lean into their emotional experience, either internally or externally, and to allow them to cope more effectively, again, inside and out. So thank you so much for the time today. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the, uh, the conversation and uh, I think the audience is going to get a lot out of it. Thank you very much for inviting me. You're very welcome, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.